0: We're grateful for our worship leaders and for them helping lead us into God's presence. I hope that you are really saturating yourself in the Lord and enjoying his presence. Let's move into Jeremiah chapter 31. God brings joy. Contentment and peace and joy, we long for it. Uh, I know that I, in some ways, have had a lifelong search for peace. I'm so wound up all the time. And of course, in these recent days, we have social turmoil and covid And then our own soul struggles, and we long for joy. We know that God brings joy. People tell us that all the time, right? But how does God bring joy? Uh, Just read a couple verses here in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt. O virgin Israel, again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. And then uh, on to verses 13 and 14, again, this idea of joy. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I'll give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. So amazing stuff here, right? Joy, dancing, abundance. And again, it would be great. You know, Lord, bring us into your joy. So God brings joy, but what we want to explore here this morning is how does God bring joy? Several ways God brings joy. The first way God brings joy is by restoring us. So let's look at less familiar part of Jeremiah 31, verse 17 to 20. Says this. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I've been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return cause, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Let's pray. So Lord, we ask that as we break into your word today, that you would really open our minds and hearts that we would get a little understanding what's going on here, that intellectually we could grasp it. But then beyond that, we pray that you'd really help us to see how it's relevant to our lives. Work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're reading carefully and if you know your Bible a little bit, you might be surprised here because we're talking about uh, hope. And you may know, we've mentioned this before, that chapters 30 to 32 in Jeremiah are about hope. They're surprising. Chapters because they come in the middle of a lot of uh, judgment, 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 and really these chapters come probably at a time when Jeremiah, right toward the end of the life of Judah, and Jeremiah is actually in prison. And what would you expect when you're in prison? Well, Jeremiah actually gets some words of hope, and so this one's surprising, though. Because it mentions Ephraim. Now, you may know, okay, Ephraim is one of the tribes. All right, which one is it? You know, why is he talking about Ephraim? But Ephraim, because it was a very large tribe in northern Israel, is one of the ways that they refer to northern Israel. Well, this is surprising because northern Israel, when Jeremiah prophesies, doesn't exist. It's been exiled for 100 years. So, this is a surprise. They've been exiled and you know they've kind of disappeared. Mostly, uh, we get a little hint in the Book of Chronicles in the restoration, and um, and in uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, there's a little bit of mention of the Northern Israelites, the Ephraimites, and the Benjamites, uh, but. If you were Jeremiah at this time, you might think, well, it's just all over, right? They've been exiled, and uh, they, unlike the Babylonian exile, the Assyrians, when they destroyed northern Israel, they didn't let them move in in groups, so they just, you know, they're just all over the place, and they deliberately intermarried them with other people, and uh, so, you know, they're gone, right, Uh, largely, Uh, but God says, no, I have not forgotten them. They're devastated and decimated, but God has not forgotten them. Then verses 18 and 19 tell us, Ephraim now, the godly northern Israelites understand, it was discipline. It wasn't just random events. It wasn't just political. It was discipline. God was behind it, working in their lives. And so in verse 18, he looks to God. He says, I've been disciplined. Restore me and I'll return. Lord, do the work in me, restore me. And then verse 19, his side, after I restrained, I repented. So you see, God's side, restore me, but his side, I repented when God worked in his life. And he bore some shame for his folly. This is powerful. Jeremiah is giving hope to the prodigal. This nation was one of God's, Right? and he knew better and now they return and we read verse 20 God delights in the prodigal yearns has compassion on even or especially the prodigal so in terms of biblical theology you just want to really fix in your mind this is remarkable that God's going to reclaim even northern israel who in a sense was irretrievably lost in an ethnic sense but God pursues them anyway even those who appear irretrievably lost. That is what God is like. So much so that when the New Testament uh, applies this principle, they apply it to a group of people they regard as even farther from God than northern Israel. That's the Gentiles. That'd be me. Probably you, too. (laughs) Those really wild people that don't even know there's one God. He says even they, they can be retrieved. So I think the lesson here is clear as we look at the historical context. The direct context doesn't relate to us, but the principle does. No one, neither you nor anyone you know, is irretrievably lost. God chases those farthest from him. So if you've been living in disobedience, do what it says in verse 19, repent. God is changing your heart. You're hearing these words. God is working in your heart to restore you. Repent, face the shame and humiliation, and return to God. But for all of us, remember, it's very easy to look at people sometimes and think, well, they're just so far. But you know what? No one is too far for God. Anyone who turns to the gospel and to Jesus Christ, anyone I'm telling you, in our context, just think about it. White supremacists, Antifa, firebombers, any who repent and face their shame can find the path to joy. Because the first way God brings joy is by restoring us, forgiveness. But there's another way that God brings joy. Second way that God brings joy is by repaying us. Now, read in verse 27, very interesting stuff here. The days are coming declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that's the north and south again, with the offspring of men and animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot them and tear them down and overthrow and destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, Everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Well, that must be some saying, because it makes it into Ezekiel, too, who's also a a younger contemporary of Jeremiah. So what's the idea? Uh, Here, a good literal translation is actually a little confusing. What they're saying, essentially, in our terms would be, the fathers have eaten candy and the kids get cavities. Right, so they're saying, "Oh, our fathers disobeyed God, and here we are in exile." Great, you know, thanks, Dad. Right, uh, we get the problem, and and so he's saying, God's going to focus, not change how he deals with, still punishes sin, blesses obedience, but he's going to focus. He says, "No longer will you say that. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin." Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will get cavities, right? His own teeth will be set on edge. So he's he's saying we're going to move here. There's a change that begins to happen late in the prophets as we head toward the new covenant that God says, I'm going to repay you. So verses 27 and 28, there is going to be a physical restoration of Judah and Israel. Again, Chronicles mentions this. Paul in Romans eleven twenty six. 26, actually in a larger, very sophisticated discussion, Paul basically says, ultimately all Israel will be saved, meaning ethnic Israel, not saved from some separate covenant, but in Christ through the gospel. So Paul is trusting this promise in Jeremiah and others in Isaiah and elsewhere. But then verses 29 and 30 get to the key point. Each will be accountable for their own sin. Well, wasn't this always true? Yes, but... God really dealt with Israel as a group and generationally. And so you see the judgment coming on a nation. And God still does that, of course. But in Jeremiah, we begin to see something emphasized that continues to increase in emphasis throughout the rest of the prophetic period and moving into the New Testament, which is two things. Immediate retribution and God dealing with individuals. Right. So, immediate retribution. Retribution sounds negative. Can be either one, negative or positive. Immediate retribution means God blesses obedience and curses disobedience. Not someday, but now in your life. Right. God will do so immediately. You'll you will experience as an individual blessing. And cursing. And because the blessing and cursing kind of overlaps with you and your family and society, you can kind of be experiencing these things simultaneously at times. But ultimately, your individual choice will determine the dominant impact of blessing or cursing. So, in terms of biblical theology, we think of, uh, and let's look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. This is where it really culminates. In the New Testament, and this is a very, very powerful teaching, I want you to grasp this. This really could be life-changing. Paul says, taking the same principle here and really making it clear, he says in Galatians 6, 7 to 10, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. It can't happen. A man reaps what he sows. That's how life works. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. I'll add, therefore, verses 9 and 10, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially those who belong to the family of believers. So here we go. You will reap what is sown. God cannot be, it can't happen. In other words, another way to say it is, God has set up the world in such a way that when you operate in the way that God intended the world to be operated, which comes out of his character, by the way. It's not arbitrary, right? God's law is not arbitrary. God couldn't have said, well, I think I'll make murder good and and love bad. No, no. The, the, The moral law flows out of God's character, right? And so when we act in line with God's character... The world is designed in such a way out of his very being that goodness flows from that. God can't change. Some people misunderstand grace. Grace can't take away from the fact that evil brings destruction. You can be forgiven, but evil brings destruction. That's how the world is. That's how you're designed. That's how we're designed. And that's what we see going on in Minneapolis-St. Paul today when people lose control and, and kill someone and then others combine their evil with that terrible devastation comes and people starve. And Venezuela is still struggling to get it together with a, you know, two governments at the same time and people are dying of COVID. I guess they just got together, that's good. <laughs> Point being that you can't get around this reality You reap what is sown. And so he says, so so when you reap to please the Holy Spirit in your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions, it's going to bring blessing. It's going to happen. And so Paul says, fill the world with good deeds and especially your brothers and sisters. (laughs) Take care of family, right, in Christ. God rewards every good work. What does this mean for us? Here's the power of this thing. We sometimes feel powerless. Oh, you know, I've had this temptation. Oh, I gave in, you know. No. No, you may not be able to change your heart in a day, but sowing and reaping says that ultimately, under the grace of God, you can sow the right seed and change the fruitfulness of your life from bad seed, bad fruit to good fruit. We have power in Christ over the direction of our lives. I can change anything, even my imagination, by choosing what I dwell on. Folks, this is freedom, tremendous freedom. I can change and direct the results of my soul, the emotions in my soul, by what I dwell. Now, I can't just say, I'm going to feel better, right? You know that, right? Emotions are not you know, directly, I'm going to be happy now. No, you can't do that. But you can fill your mind with the truth of God's word. You can think, as Philippians says, on what is good, true, lovely, etc. And you can change the condition of your soul. You can change the actions and the words what you plant, and the the effect in your life is transformed. So do you want greater peace? Think about God's promises of care and provision. Do you want more results from your ministry? Pray, listen to God, and then do what he shows you to do. As we do these things, though, we're talking about joy, you're going to start smiling. Because you know what? It's good to know God. It's good to know you're loved by God. It's good to know the blessings of God. Right thinking about God and right actions related to eternity will automatically lead to joy because the second way that God brings joy is by repaying us. But the third way God brings joy and the central passage of Jeremiah 31 is by redeeming us. Read with me what I hope are very familiar words, but if not, today's your day. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, these are among the top six scriptures in the Old Testament. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah, my instruction in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, because I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Wow. New covenant. This is actually the only place in the Old Testament where that actual phrase is used, although the concept is referred to elsewhere, Ezekiel 36 and other places. And he says it's not going to be like the Old Covenant, verse 32 where I took them by the hand and it's um, kind of led them by the hand in the Hebrew. It's, it's sort of a, uh, there's a juvenile sense in it where, you know, they couldn't act maturely on their own. So I kind of took them, you know, come on, come out of Egypt, guys, you know. Uh, uh, even though God was, he says, their husband, uh, but really it's God was their Baal. Uh, in other words, their Lord. Uh, where That would be, could be husband, but it's like uh, he was their Lord, but they, you know, they weren't, weren't getting it. Verse 33, rather, he says, uh, I will put my, my, my law, that's the word Torah, instruction, that's the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, the, the law. So law, yes, and rules, yes, but really it's instruction in how we're intended to live. I'll put my instruction in their minds, and then he says in a beautiful phrase, I'll write it on their hearts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> get it right in there. Uh, and in relationship, I'll be their God and they'll be my people, uh, but, but notice what he's saying, internal change. Now, this is one of the key theological understandings that Jeremiah contributes to the Bible. Remember in Jeremiah 13, 23, the famous verse, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So, so Jeremiah... Early in his life, he was around for the reformation that righteous King Josiah initiated, what some call the fourth revival in Israel. So he, I mean, they destroyed every single idol altar and uh, they're getting rid of uh, idolatrous priests and, and Josiah with a pure heart is trying to do everything he can to legislate change. And Jeremiah watched that as a young prophet and he admired Josiah. He had nothing bad to say about him. He admired him. But he got to watch firsthand that reformation is not enough. That changing the laws externally, the, the, the worship and religious practices externally is not enough. And out of that experience, God gave them the revelation that what we need is a heart change. Now, really, it was in Moses as well, but Jeremiah brings it out very, very clearly. A deep change of nature is needed. Jeremiah's grasp of the failure of the Reformation led to his greatest insight that we need a nature change. And you know, here we are in the Old Testament, New Covenant passage, but still, we're in the Old Testament. Some Christians still haven't figured this out. And you just said, well, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna try harder. Well, sure, I mean, try until you're, you know, Knuckles are skinned and bloody, metaphorically speaking. uh, That's good to go through that. But but you're not going to change yourself. It's the heart cry for transformation combined with sincere repentance. The heart cry. God, I need a new nature. I don't need an improved Craig. I need a new one. With that comes intimacy. I will be for them, God, and they will be for me, a people intimacy, knowing God. So verse 34 says, everyone is going to know God because of forgiveness. A couple things to say here. Ultimately, these passages, as I wrestled with, especially chapter 31, 32 and 33. Is that right? Yes. Um, realize that they are envisioning a new covenant, but they're actually picturing the ultimate result, hell, heaven. Uh, where are we going to be where no one, everyone knows the Lord, right? But he does picture widespread conversion. All will know God, he says. Consummation, of course, is in heaven, the final kingdom. But because of forgiveness. So here's the insight that in spite of us thinking we know the gospel, I think we need the preaching of forgiveness makes widespread conversion possible. When you preach the Christian life as a good set of practices and spiritual growth, and it is all that, but forgiveness, the message of forgiveness, new life, is what makes widespread conversion possible. So here's the key to the new covenant, forgiveness for all who ask. Staggering. In fact, I read my sermon notes today and thought, that's ridiculous. Everybody who asks just gets forgiven? But it's true. That's not fair. But it's true. So notice the three elements of the new covenant. Heart change. Law of God in the heart. And actually knowing God Because of forgiveness. Now, if you're a believer, I hope you already know this at some level. If you're not yet, you're kind of on the edge, we want to welcome you. Say, ask the Lord to forgive you and change you, and he will, just like that. It is really that simple. For those that would say they know that, could we go back to the simplicity of the gospel? Only God can change the heart. And then we know him, and we're forgiven. Now, backing up, look at the big picture. All the way from Genesis, this was the point. All along, Hebrews 8 quotes this passage and says, if nothing was wrong with the first covenant, they wouldn't have had another one, right? And then 8.13 says, actually, once you understand this, the old covenant is obsolete. Why? Why? Because God was moving the human race to this culminating point all along where they would simply, we would simply know God because we're forgiven and he would write his law in our heart. That was always the intention to culminate in this great ministry. God forgives us because we need it. He puts his law in our heart to unify us with him and one another. Knowing God is the goal. And so, you know, we think of the, the disaster with uh, the man uh, Floyd murdered. The failure of that is that the not knowing God, all this hatred and vengeance builds up in the heart. The opportunity here is we get forgiven we embrace God's word that he's writing in our heart. We know him and we've got love in ourselves to give away. So the third way God brings joy is by redeeming us. So there's hope for everyone. If we'll repent and sow to the spirit and pursue God, there is hope for everyone. There's joy for everyone. If we'll turn from self-reliance to God, So thoughts of trust and knowing him, there's peace for everyone. If we'll stop our wars, plant seeds of peace, soak in his redemption. So what do you need? To turn? To plant truth? To receive forgiveness? What's your friends need? God brings joy. Forgiveness, reward, and redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word and your plan is so amazing. Your desire to bring us into this beautiful relationship where you actually write your truth right in our being and we're forgiven and free and able to reach out in redemptive love and forgiveness and grace to those around us. Father, we pray in these days for the healing of our souls and the healing of our city, the healing of our relationships, and especially between those of different racial backgrounds, we pray that your church would demonstrate unity in Christ and gracious love. And above all, love, we just hold up your grace and your goodness. You planned it all so that we could know you and love you together forever. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.